Take a look around you. All around you is stuff. Even the human bodies we inhabit right now are just a complex configuration of basic elements that you can find in any high school chemistry lab. What you are seeing is only a part of a much larger whole, a much bigger picture that includes existential truths to which our five mundane senses just cannot connect. Reality is not purely created of physical, tangible stuff. It's deeper than that, and, much like onions and ogres, it exists in layers. So many of us go our entire lives living a half-lie, missing out on the hidden truths of our existence. Understand, though, that this isn't even the tip of the iceberg. Wonderland is only the first stop down the rabbit hole. I'm your host, Jason, and you're listening to the Esoteric Book Club. Goblins. Tonight we are taking a look at Black Feather Mystery School, The Magpie Training by Irene Glass and Kane Dreamwalker. Before I get started, I want to welcome my newest patron, Zach, and give a shout out to Esoteric Council member, Grand Inquisitor Samantha. All patrons get early access to shows for as little as $1 per month, and those pledging above $3 a month receive extended episodes. If you like what you hear and want to help me out, you can find me on patreon.com forward slash esoteric book club. In the interest of full disclosure, I was given an advanced reader copy of this book free of charge by the author in exchange for a fair, unbiased review. I have not been compensated in any way for this episode. So what is the Black Feather Mystery School, and why is this book subtitled The Magpie Training? According to their website, they are, quote, a fundamental full-spectrum training in empowered witchcraft, developed through the collaboration of a mystic witch and a spirit worker. It's a synthesis and outgrowth of more than 20 years in the art and practice of witchcraft, and threads the needle between the structure of traditional witchcraft and the freedom of mysticism. Blackfeather is designed to create a safe, strong structure for the cultivation of mystical experiences for personal growth. And the magpie part? At Blackfeather, there are four levels of instruction, and each is named for a different corvid, magpie, rook, crow, and raven. This book incorporates the first level of training, hence the magpie. The foundation of Blackfeather came from a combination of Wicca, witchcraft, spirit work, and the author's own experiences and gnosis. Their goal is to enrich three specific areas through these lessons. Empowered witchcraft, a diverse magical toolbox, and a strong structure upon which to build your future practices. That's right. Even if you choose not to continue with Blackfeather, what they teach you in the magpie training will help you in other magical endeavors later on. Let's start by taking a look at Empowered Witchcraft. What exactly is it? 
It's an interesting combination of emotional well-being, physical health, and magical competency. A lot of systems try to develop emotional well-being through magical competency, which is kind of like building a cart before you have a horse. Over the last few years, there has been an increasing amount of attention given to shadow work in the magical community. It sounds far more ominous than it really is. Well, I guess less ominous for outsiders, maybe not so much for the person doing the work. Anyway, shadow work is about facing your inner struggles, traumas, and self-sabotaging in order to bring about emotional stability. Lots of modern systems rely on this, and Blackfeather does so as well. But what makes this instruction series unique is that it also adds physical health to the foundational aspect of its teachings. It refers to this as a sacred movement practice. Yeah, it sounds like a fancy word for exercise, but it reframes it as a devotional action. What makes it different? Your intent. Quote, Your sacred movement practice is one of the most powerful and fundamentally altering things that you can do for yourself. You're ritualizing your physical well-being. In the triangle of mind, body, and spirit, the physical body is often overlooked, which weakens the other two since they have to work a bit harder to compensate. I also want to point out that this is not an ableist point of view either. The student is advised to work within their means and ability. You don't have to strive towards becoming an Olympic athlete, but you do have to seek to improve yourself. Magic isn't a shortcut, and this is no different. Besides, what happens if you get really good at one thing, and suddenly that one thing no longer works? You have to have the means and ability to adapt, which leads us to the next part of the Blackfeather Triad, a diverse magical toolbox. As described in the text, by introducing the techniques of spirit work, sometimes referred to as second wave shamanism, in conjunction with the techniques of witchcraft, a more balanced approach to the world of spirit is possible. The two systems work beautifully together, and enable access to a wide variety of tools to support your practice. What's included in this toolbox anyway? We've already talked about the tools for inner healing, which, in all honesty, is a humongous help to anyone who seeks out this type of spirituality. This book also encompasses energy work, divination, meditation, how to identify different types of spirits and how to work with them, basic spell work, protection, and in the final chapters, astral journeying and shape-shifting. Wow, that's, uh, that's a lot for an introductory book. But you know what? Each chapter builds upon those that came before it. So by the time you get to the end, you're drawing upon lessons that you learned in four or five chapters prior to this. So it's not by any means overwhelming unless you jump straight into chapter 14 or 15, in which case you will have no idea what's going on. But that is exactly what the final part of the Blackfeather Triad teaches, the underlying structure for a magical practice. 
There are certain things that you need to be competent in before attempting to do magic of any sort. Why? Because a lot of the strength of magic comes from belief that it will work. That seems a little counterintuitive, yes, but hear me out. Why don't witches and magical practitioners do large workings on their own when they first begin? Because it's not likely to work. Why is it not likely to work? I just said that magic is based on belief, and if I just believe hard enough, it should work, right? Until you gain confidence in your abilities and experience tangible effects from your work, a seed of doubt will always remain. As they talk about in this book, you begin making small nudges to help the probability of certain events to become more likely. This isn't just because it's easier, but because the more times that you influence the outcomes of an event, the more confident you become. Belief functions much like a muscle. It doesn't grow unless you flex it once in a while. Bodybuilders do different exercises to get different results. They do lower weight exercises with more repetition to get better muscle definition. But when they want to get physically bigger, they use heavier weights. So by doing smaller spells more frequently, you build your muscle memory. But if you want to achieve bigger results, you begin working with incrementally bigger spells. As the authors state, by regularly engaging with spiritual practice, we build the muscles used for magic in its many forms. We become more proficient as practitioners. If we are dedicants, servants or allies of the gods, our relationships with the powers we serve become stronger. We are better able to choose paths that support our individual true north, our own natural alignment. As I am fond of telling my students, I am not good at rituals and magic because I have some unusual ability. I am good at them because I've had a lot of practice. End quote. Now that we have examined the foundations of the school's structure, let's look at the instructions themselves. Most people who have read even just a single book on magic will recognize a lot of what is talked about early on but with a specific twist unique to Blackfeather. Altars are not uncommon in most practices, but the Blackfeather altar engages all five senses, or six depending on how you look at it. It includes a mirror, scented oils and perfumes, a bowl of salt, a dark colored stone, a candle, and a written blessing or dedication. The candle works to activate the visual aspect, the oils work for scent, which I'm combining with taste since they are intrinsically tied to one another, the stone is for touch, the blessing is for hearing, and the mirror, the mirror is for your sixth sense. Now this isn't explicitly stated in the program, but it is an observation I've made as an outsider. So what about the bowl of salt? The bowl of salt serves as a grounding agent to use along with the stone. The stone, while activating your sense of touch, is also used as a vessel to place your negative emotions, wandering thoughts, and worries into. After you do this, you place it in the salt, which helps to dissipate these energies, leaving it clean and clear for the next time you use it. 
What I find most fascinating is the use of scent. Scent plays a big role in magic and ritual around the world. Copal, patchouli, sage, frankincense, clove. All of these have a special place in ritual work, even among different belief structures. We attribute meaning and abilities to different smells, but more importantly, scent has the power to shift our focus and perception. I'm not talking about entheogens either. The sense of smell has an incredibly strong ability to stimulate mental recall. Imagine you walk into a bakery and they are taking a fresh batch of sugar cookies out of the oven. That smell tickles a portion of your brain, and suddenly you're back in your childhood making Christmas cookies with your mother. Not only that, but the memory is far more vivid than when you try to remember what you may have had for breakfast this morning, isn't it? Now imagine that you have a specific scented oil blend that you use for magic and ritual. When you first start learning, it seems like it's just a repetitive task that you're doing just for the sake of doing it. As you progress, though, you'll begin to understand that this scent is going to aid you as a trigger that helps you get into the proper headspace much quicker than normal. While you can use any oil or scent that you choose, there are several recipes listed in this book that are used by the school and its instructors. Essentially, they are all variations of the same recipe, using hyssop, patchouli, chamomile, mugwort, cedar, lemongrass, clove, and fennel. That said, if you are following this book as coursework, this oil blend will be used at the beginning of each chapter as an aid to assist your studies. To prepare yourself to get into the right mindset for magical study, there is a simple ritual utilized by Blackfeather that incorporates the oil blend mentioned above, casting a circle, which is a magical protective barrier, and reciting the following chant. Cast the flame, the circle bright, sacred space contains the right. In the center power grows, within, without, above, below. Think of this like a warm-up routine before lifting weights. You need to stretch your metaphysical muscles and get them ready to work. Following this is a brief moment of meditation and visualization and a recitation of the Black Feather Statement of Purpose. We gather to learn, to heal, to grow. We gather to honor, to worship, to rise. We gather to defend, protect, to empower. We gather to answer the call. Black feathers, green hearts, so may it be. You probably noticed some repetition in there, didn't you? Three sets of three? That's going to be a key element in a lot of this work, and it's something we also heard about in Season 2, Episode 11, Six Ways. The repetition of groups of three is another semi-universal aspect in the human experience. Maybe it's because our brains are wired to remember things in groups of three? Who knows? All I know is that you will see it pop up as a sacred number, along with factors of three, pretty frequently, regardless of what belief system or practice you follow. The closing recitation is essentially the same, 
but instead of saying, we gather, it changes to, we go forth, signifying that these principles are to be utilized in your everyday life. With the basics covered, it's time to move on to the more in-depth lessons. First up is the chapter on energy work, which may be the longest chapter in the book. You can tell that this is coursework that has been taught quite a bit by the authors because there are sections that answer questions that you don't normally see in other magical texts. For example, what does energy look or feel like in the wild? Meaning, how can you recognize energy, which is largely invisible, when you are out and about in your everyday life? What is the difference between harmonious and discordant energies? I really like this description as opposed to the overly simplistic good and bad energies. This doesn't anthropomorphize something that is otherwise amoral. Energy doesn't know right and wrong. It simply exists. Can energy influence us? The responses to this question are broken into two sections. The first is a general description of influential energy and then a whole section on consciously directed influential energy. What's really interesting, since we are technically still in the section on encountering energy in the wild, is how we see societal energy manifestation through cultural zeitgeist. Zeitgeist is defined as the spirit or mood of a particular period of history as shown by the ideas and beliefs of the time. The example used in the book are the civil rights movement, the women's suffrage movement, or, on a smaller scale, inter-office politics. Moving beyond the basics, there are further detailed descriptions of chakras, the way that energy naturally flows through the body, blockages, and how to use meditation to work with and direct energy flow. Again, this book does something unique rather than just regurgitate the same information on chakras like you find in other books. They talk about different methods to build and raise energy. The very first method listed is chanting. By working together in a steady rhythm, a group of people can build energy very quickly. Singing is similar to this, but as they say in the book, the one caveat here is that singing can be uncomfortable for people who do not like to sing or who feel insecure about their voices. Despite the fact that I am releasing this to you in an audio format, I'm actually included in this group. You will almost never catch me singing. Unless it's happy birthday and that is only due to cultural and societal pressures for me to participate. Another technique to build energy is through dance. We see this all over the world throughout all time. I won't bother listing examples since you probably already have several that immediately came to mind. Dance allows you to focus your mind on your goal while using movement to build energy. This doesn't require synchronized movement or really even to get out of your chair. They give a very basic example in this book called the cross-body reach. Basically, you take one arm, extend it across your body past the opposite shoulder, and then draw it back to your side. Then you alternate hands back and forth. 
For a lot of people, the movement of their hands is a very tactile thing and gives them a better sense of harnessing and directing energy, despite the fact that you can't manually pick it up and move it. Finally, there is a way to build energy while remaining perfectly still. Breathing exercises. This one will take some practice and more specialized instruction, but it is listed here as a technique if students would like to look into it more. When I read this part, I immediately thought of Wim Hof, who has a series of techniques called, well, it's called the Wim Hof Method. Essentially, he combines breathing exercises and cold therapy to build energy, which is used for health benefits as well as feats of endurance. This guy is pretty nuts. He holds world records for running a half marathon barefoot through the snow, climbing part of Everest while wearing nothing but shorts and footwear, and the staggering feat of climbing one of the three peaks of Mount Kilimanjaro in only 28 hours. I can't think of a better example of the energy that can be generated just through practice breathing exercises. There's more than just solo work in here, though. There are directions for paired and group exercises that help you practice. In fact, that is a recurring theme throughout this book. Ideally, these techniques would be taught in a group setting, with the book being used as a textbook. The authors acknowledge that not everyone will have this opportunity, hence the solo exercises. It's a nice balance, since the solo exercises can be practiced outside of a group setting, allowing you to advance without relying on assistance of others. Moving on from vigorous activity that builds energy, we turn inward to meditation. All things must balance, right? There are quite a few chapters on meditation, so I'm going to skip around and focus on the parts that I appreciate the most. First is something that really adds to the content of this multimedia experience. That's right. While this is a text, there are also audio recordings that you can stream online from SoundCloud. Included in these recordings are fully guided meditations. If you aren't capable of streaming them, they are written out in text form in the book, so you can record yourself reading them and play back the recording if necessary. One particular meditation stood out to me because it stimulates both parts of your brain by asking you to visualize numbers but those numbers are each a different color. It seems odd, doesn't it? But just try the first few of them here. Picture the number 11 being orange. Now picture the number 10 being yellow. 9 is green. 8 is blue. And so on. It's not the easiest thing to do. And if you're anything like me, you can feel your thoughts warping a bit as they try to make the visualization congeal in your mind's eye. That's a pretty good metaphor for a lot of this instruction. You're retraining your brain in a new way to look at the world. Most of us have grown up with a very materialistic worldview. This isn't anyone's fault, it's just the way that society has formed. There is the world of man living in cities and communities, and then there is this howling wild, bereft of civilization. 
This is an illusion, though. We're not really living outside the wilds. It's all around us. We're living in it. We've just managed to reduce the amount of it that we encounter on a daily basis. Despite this, spirits are everywhere. We talked about this to some degree in Season 1, Episode 4, Urban Magic. Similar topics are broached in the Black Feather Mystery School, but it teaches you how to contact and work with these spirits directly. One of the more advanced lessons teaches you how to make contact with the genius Loki, or the spirit of place. This one is a little harder to explain, but think of it like this. Smaller individual spirits are like the microorganisms in your body, while the genius Loki is, well, you. It's the micro and macro scale of the spirit world. While it's not touched upon, it is likely that it just keeps scaling upwards. You could start with a spirit in the tree in your backyard, then move up to the community level, the regional level, and eventually up to the continental level. Although I'm not sure we would be able to get the attention of the spirit of a continent, let alone be able to comprehend its words. This is all part of the animist mindset and is incorporated into much of the spirit work done in this book. It's an interesting combination of neo-shamanism and witchcraft. This blending of compatible methodology is what makes Blackfeather a unique system. The downside is that when you start to work with the spirits, other things start to take notice. Early in the book, the authors go into protection. This is essential because you don't want spiritual hitchhikers. This could range from otherworldly parasites to actual human ghosts who want to badger you about something from their past life. The idea is that the more you do this, the more you encounter them, and, much like work, when you go home, you just want to be left alone. The sections on protection are pretty broad, and give you a good basis for different apotropaic objects, such as smoky quartz, black salt, railroad spikes, incenses, witch bottles, etc. They don't go into a ton of depth, but they also don't gloss over them either. There's enough information to protect you at this level of learning. The more advanced stuff comes with the shielding exercises. Quote, Magical people witches, magicians, spirit workers, and the like, are a bit like the flames of a candle in a dark room. If we think of magical skill as being at the core of the flame, magical folk shine very brightly. That brightness draws things to us. Some of these things are good. Sometimes it's other bright lights, or helpful spirits, or gods. However, we also draw moths, Along with human moths, there are other beings that can be a threat to people who shine. Our world is shared by many non-corporeal and incorporeal spirits. Some of them will try to attach to a bright light in an attempt to prolong their existence. End quote. This sounds pretty dire, for sure, but it's not terribly common. 
At least, not at first. As you gain power, though, your light shines brighter, and these things come crawling out of the shadows. This is where shielding comes in. This is a combination of various techniques that we've already covered. Visualization, meditation, and energy work. It just happens that in this case we are combining all three of them. Basically, and this is going to be super basic, you will enter a meditative state, draw upon your energy, and visualize a barrier of some sort being formed around you. This will look different to each person, and that's part of the magic of it, no pun intended. Most texts will teach you the basic, surrounded by white light, version of shielding, which works, but it's the most basic version of shielding that you can do. When you start to attract these metaphysical moths, you'll need shielding that allows for certain levels of energy exchange. That may sound weird at first, considering that you're trying to keep things out. But you have to remember, a wall is a wall. If nothing can get through, then nothing can get through, including the good things. There are, unsurprisingly, three levels of shielding that you can perform. Impermeable, semi-permeable, and specifically permeable. Impermeable is a wall. Full stop. Nothing gets in, but nothing gets out either. Semi-permeable shields take a bit more practice, but will only block hostile intent. This is usually recommended for group settings where you know and are comfortable with your company. Finally, after a bit of practice, you can create shields that are open to specific individuals. Think of it like building a wall with a door in it, and then giving chosen people a key. Although, I think a gatehouse may be a better metaphor, since you can still lower the drawbridge and allow people in temporarily, but if they prove to be untrustworthy, you can easily drop the portcullis and lock them out. The level of detail in this section is quite nice, and it takes you slightly beyond the basics. Then again, this is for protective purposes, so it makes sense to spend a little extra time on this. The last part that I want to go over in the regular section of this episode is something entitled Life Sculpting. I'll tell you, I was wary of this chapter when I first read the title, but it makes a bit more sense when you get into the details. Life Sculpting is kind of like shadow work, combined with intensive, reflective journaling, mixed with a bit of mindfulness, and a splash of magic. The defining metaphor for this is the death and rebirth cycle. Old patterns and behaviors must die so that new ones can be born. Sometimes that seems easier said than done. Sometimes events take place and we are not given a choice in the matter. That's the benefit of doing this ahead of time, assuming you are lucky enough to have avoided major tragedy up to this point. It all begins by finding your true north, with a capital T and a capital N. This is your moral compass, the perfect alignment for your life. Your life, not anyone else's. 
That's what's so liberating about this. You get to decide what your ideal bearing should be. This also introduces a unique concept. Divine discontent. Divine discontent is a restlessness. A feeling that on some level, something isn't right. Frequently, we can't even name what that problem is. Overcoming this discontent is done through the life-sculpting process. Remember what I said earlier, though? There are two ways that this happens. Self-initiated, in which you are in conscious control, and invasive, where an event forces a change upon you. As described in the book, quote, Invasive life sculpting is more challenging. It occurs when a sudden catastrophe appears in your life with no warning. This can be the abrupt death of someone close, the loss of a job, or a breakup that you didn't see coming. There's an additional burden of shock, as well as less time to prepare. During invasive life sculpting, you find yourself starting in the middle of the transformation. Man, if anyone has had this happen to them, they know exactly how true those words are. Now, there's not really any direction for this type of life sculpting because you'll be in survival mode. It's not exactly easy to find your true north when you are worried about being able to afford food or finding a place to live. Instead, begin the work before this happens to you so that you have some idea of which direction to turn. If you are fortunate, you can do this work progressively over time, without tragedy forcing it upon you. This is going to require a good bit of reflection and journaling, so be ready and find a good notebook. Blackfeather breaks this up into sections based on the elements. This format actually works pretty well, because it segments the entirety of life into manageable quadrants with set themes. In the Earth section, you will consider your foundation, the home. What type of lifestyle fits you the best? What do you find comfort in? Where do you find comfort? I'm sure just listening to this, you're already looking around, considering whether or not you are where you want to be. In the Air section, we reflect upon our mind. What type of work stimulates your mind? Or conversely, what type of work brings you peace? Are you introverted or extroverted? Do you recover through isolation or through socializing? What are your hobbies, and when was the last time that you were able to indulge in them? That last one probably hits home with a lot of us. The element of fire is a bit more nebulous. How do we want to burn our fuel? In this case, our fuel is time. Are you spending too much time just trying to get by? Where do your passions lay? Are they being fulfilled? Do you set boundaries with your time, or do you allow your candle to be burnt at both ends? These are scary thoughts to confront. Water is about our physical bodies. No one, and I mean no one, is happy with how they look. 
so instead we are asked to reflect on how we would like to feel within our bodies. What would you like to be able to do? Would you like a better diet? Would you like to be able to hike longer distances? Maybe you'd like to dance, create art, play music. What is preventing you from doing these things? Finally, we have spirit. This is all about connections. Connections to spirituality, people, to yourself, and to the greater world around you. Do you feel isolated and alone? Do you feel disconnected? Do you have a social safety net of any sort? If things changed in your life, who would be there to support you? Where would you turn to find peace? These are pretty big existential questions, which is probably why spirit is the last section. I don't know about you, but I got a wee bit of anxiety just hearing these journal prompts. That said, these are all things that we, as individuals, need to reflect upon. Reflections that we generally are distracted from by media and technology. Looking back over your notes, what is preventing you from making these changes in your life? I'm going to guess that it comes down to two things. Time and money. Now, I can't advise you on your finances, that's for sure. But I can tell you one thing. You can always make more money. But time, time is finite. So what did I think about this book? First, I have to acknowledge that this is the advanced reader copy and not necessarily what is going to be in the final product. Hopefully, the content doesn't change much, because I thought this was all pretty good. At times, it seemed to jump around between lessons, but certain things had to be taught in order to advance the larger lesson. By the second half of the book, you're utilizing most of the basics that you learned in the first half. The lessons themselves are clearly written and are a good blend of narrative and instructional. Metaphors are kept to a minimum, with one notable exception. In Chapter 12, there was an extended computer metaphor, and while I was able to follow it, it made the chapter a bit clunky. One of my favorite aspects of this book is the inclusion of digital recordings that can be freely accessed by anyone who wants to use them. That said, they are currently only available for live stream. I would like it if they were available for download, even if I were charged 99 cents a piece for them. I don't always have a reliable connection, and yes, the scripts are available in the book, but reading a guided meditation to yourself is a bit awkward. After talking to the author, they are looking to change this so that there is a download option on SoundCloud. I also hope that there is a table of contents in the final book. I understand why there isn't one in the draft copy, and there are even sections that say, quote, please refer to page blank, showing that these are placeholders for the final draft. That said, I would really like to be able to locate a specific section by topic. The final criticism I have is that the book references other titles and authors, but there really is no bibliography. 
It would be great if I could flip to the back of the book and get all the necessary details to order supplemental texts. If they're good enough to be referenced, they're probably worth reading. Not only that, it would be nice to have a further reading list on related subjects and books that have been vetted by the authors. If you are reading the Magpie Training as coursework, it would be nice to know what else is compatible with its lessons. Overall, I felt that this book was informative and provides a good framework for, well, in places just for life in general, let alone a magical life. My nitpicking was mostly because I had a hard time finding things about this book that I didn't like. I wrote a ton of notes in the margins and scribbled down book titles and authors whose works reflected the course material so I could go back and cross-reference it later. If you can't tell, I do recommend this book to anyone who wants to get into the basics of spell work, spirit work, or even just pagan spirituality in general. Hell, the journaling and meditation exercises would be beneficial for anyone to do them. So keep an eye out for The Black Feather Mystery School, The Magpie Training, by Irene Glass and Kane Dreamwalker. The scheduled release date is May 4th, but pre-sale orders are not yet open. I'll post a link to the publisher's website so you can keep checking back. I'll also post links to the SoundCloud files so you can listen to some of the guided meditations found within this book. The Esoteric Book Club can be found on Facebook, Instagram, Patreon, and at esotericbookclub.org. If you want to get in touch with me, you can reach out on any of those platforms or by email at jason at esotericbookclub.org. Intro and outro music is courtesy of Sarah Rudy and her band Hello June. Their music can be found on bandcamp.com and at wearehellojune.com. As season two draws to a conclusion, I wanted to give you a heads up that I'll be taking a one-month break after releasing episode 13 of The Book Club and The News Briefs. This will give me a chance to take a breather, prepare for some conventions, and to read a normal book for once. Ah, who am I kidding? I'll probably just end up reading ahead for season three. And, if the world continues to become stranger, I'll likely release a quick news episode for patrons. That said, this is all still a month away. So until next time, remember, stay weird. special weirdos. It's time once again to open the Esoteric Archive. For our extension, we are going to take a look at my favorite section of this book, The Empowered Witch Self. The passage we heard in the introduction was directly from this chapter, and I found it rather impactful.